You're listening to Lane Radio, the hottest show this side of Diesel. Greetings and welcome to the Orange Beacon of Broadcasting and episode 20 of Lay Radio. This is the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the latest title in the series, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, Fozzer Forrester, and joining me in the sidewind of this episode, the Alpha, best described as full of exciting potential but best managed in small doses, Mr. Alan Stroud. Hi, Foz. Can I just say, I love the fact you didn't say Elite 4 in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> well done. It took you 20 episodes to ditch it. <laughs> oh, joining Alan, we have the beta, the whole package in an amazing experience, which may contain the odd bug. Mr. Jonathan Stabler. Oh, you're calling me Jonathan again. Hello, good evening. And the Gamma, the final finished article, all dressed up and nowhere to go, Mr. Christopher Jarvis. Hello. I'm just glad I didn't get referred to as a beta. <laughs> what is it is it beta or is it beta i don't know is beta american it sounds american it does sound american doesn't it beta beta anyway welcome guys uh it looks like this could be a busy show given the rate of updates coming out of frontier developments at the moment but before we get into that mr stabler it's nice to have you back you'll notice the studio is still mostly intact and we didn't burn it down how was the holiday mate it was really good, yeah. Apart from the fact I had to take my two-year-old son with me. It would have been perfect otherwise. <laughs> oh, John. Well, you know, obviously I had a great time and I spent some quality time with my son. It was it was really good. But obviously, you know, having a holiday with a two-year-old who wants your constant attention is a bit different from my previous holiday, which was my honeymoon, where I did nothing for two weeks. So uh, <laughs> I bet she was pleased. Well, she didn't want to do anything either, to be honest. It was so hot, you just didn't want to do anything <laughs> apart from sleep. Yeah, maybe we don't uh, we don't want to delve too deeply into that one. Uh, no, I... no, she didn't. She didn't want that either. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first cut of the show. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we're going to leave whatever's uh, not left on the cutting room floor. We'll leave that there. And uh, Chris, why don't you tell us what you've been up to, mate? I can now obviously talk about the fact that um, I am joining the uh, Elite Anthology as their 15th short story writer. So Hooray! I have gone, yay, I have finally, finally, after 20 episodes of Live Radio, I have, made, I have made the transition from non-canon to canon, which is, which is great. <laughs> Don't cheer yourself. Let the others cheer you. Yay! I can hear you. You cheered yourself. I'm enthusiastic yay! and cheerful. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, well done, mate. So, what can you uh, what can you tell us? I know you've uh, just put in a guest appearance on another podcast. Yeah, I've uh, just been on the um, I think third episode of the um, Comms from the Frontier podcast. Uh, we're talking about sort of imagination in games and how you know games inspire imagination, and obviously talking a bit about writing and stuff, and perhaps talking about my you know sudden and late appearance to the anthology. And yeah, talked about all kinds of stuff really. And uh, without wanting to spoil um, the Elite Anthology podcast, can you tell us anything about you know, what the book's going to be based on and how far along the process you are? Uh, well, my story certainly is the storyline is agreed with with Michael, which is obviously the first the first big step, which was actually quite painless because I'd sort of um, 
when I was putting it together, I sort of got Alan to do a quick sense check on it. And he looked at it and said, oh, I don't think there's anything there that I have a problem with. And I, <laughs> I sent it to Michael and within a sort of day, I had an email back just saying, yeah, this is fine. So there were, there were no kind of hiccups in the story approval process. Um, so yeah, I've made a start on the draft. I've got a fairly detailed synopsis of my sort of beginning, middle and end. So I'm happy that you know, I'm happy that I, I know what I'm aiming for in terms of the writing. So yeah, and without, without spoiling anything, you know, my story kind of covers, I suppose, the explorer's side of things a little bit. The, the sort of starting point for my story is a, a small crew kind of charting systems beyond the frontier. I feel like that's my kind of starting point. Oh, so no Thane then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't actually. No, I haven't sort of I'm not doing too much of a, uh, uh, a time. There, there, there'll be, you know, there might be a little Easter egg in there somewhere, but um, uh, no, mostly it's, it's a standalone story. It's, I'm actually a big fan of short stories. I, I grew up reading sort of um, The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. It was one of my favourite books that I used to just read over and over. Um, so I really like the kind of short story form. Um, so it was an opportunity to do something quite self-contained and maybe harking back a little bit to those old sort of anthologies of the 60s and 70s that I really enjoyed. Well, congratulations again, mate. It's uh, it's absolutely brilliant to have you uh, as an uh, official canon writer. So that's two writers we've got on the show. So moving over to the original, Mr. Stroud, what have you been up to this week? You don't need me now. We've got Chris. <laughs> you know, the I original. Can, I can kind like of... The Werther's original. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, difficult to chew. Um, yeah, no, what have I done? Um, written some more music for Escape Velocity. Yay! You might have mentioned the fact that you had uh, escape velocity as well. <laughs> I didn't want to hog the opening, but I can say that, you know, as of this evening, the first episode of Escape Velocity is pretty much finished. Yeah, I've just got to have some tweaks. I've just got to have a listen to, to a couple of, um, couple of scenes and then we'll... Uh... I think we're pretty much ready, aren't we, Chris? So uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's pretty much done. So yeah, I've written some more music on that. What else have I done? Oh, um, the book is is now over half uh, edited, which is good. I'm working this week on getting us to about seventy five percent. So hopefully by the end of this week, we'll be at seventy five percent, which would be nice. Um, couple Sorry, more. Sorry, mate. When you say uh, when you say half edited, can you just explain a little bit about yeah you know, what stage of editing that is? I mean, has that gone to yeah. your publisher, Fantastic Books, and come back again, or is that just no. edited with okay, yourself? Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I can, I can, I can make that plain. Um, I my my writing process, by comparison to every other writer, if you were uh, trying to to make a comparison, um, has basically been to look at where every other writer is and try desperately to catch up with them because I started <laughs> writing two and a half months after them and i was writing another book at the same time so where i am is that i completed the draft as as people know you know a few weeks ago probably about the start of the month and um since that point i've literally just started to go straight back through and reread uh put all the notes in and and clarify and you know just just work on the prose so that it's clear so there's no repetitions of words etc etc as of i think the last time we recorded we I'd, i'd done about seven chapters worth of that that difficult edit the first edit is always the hard edit because you basically you're you're going back over what you you streamed out and trying to make it you know really make sense and you know and sort of um be good prose so i went back through and i was at about seven chapters then i'm now at about 23 chapters so done of that edit and it's always always the tough edit now prior to working with a publisher when i was working on my other work essentially what would happen is i go through that first edit and then it would go over to a couple of trusted readers 
um, who are part of my uh, development process, they would read it, give me comments, and then I would read it one more time with those comments. And essentially, that would be the, the final product. And then occasionally, I'd go back and find one or two things to, to tweak. With the process with Fantastic Books, it's slightly different, but also slightly similar in that um, what happens is I do this first edit and then it goes to them. So it's going to, to their, uh, their submissions editor. And I've broken the book down into chunks of 10 chapters each, or rather 10, 10, 8, uh, <laughs> and epilogue, because um, the epilogue goes on the, the last bit. And then basically I'm sending them over. So they've currently got 10 chapters. Uh, I've edited another 13, so they're ready to go. But I'm waiting to send those. Uh, basically, I'm waiting to hear back on the first 10 before I send the next section. So uh, it keeps me ahead. You know, which is the you know is the plan. Does that help? No, no, absolutely. That answers the question completely. Uh, I just thought it would be quite quite different for you having a you know, a a publisher behind you this time. So uh, the publisher is basically going to sort of sit in alongside your trusted readers. You're still going to use your you know the people that you've used before, or are you just going to focus on having it edited by the publisher? Well, I think I probably will use the people I've uh, I've used before, um, and um, I, I think Chris has got a copy too. So Chris is uh, is kind of going through the very bad version that uh, um, that that was prior to the first draft. So you know that kind of helps a little bit as well. And any you know any comments at that stage is good. But what you don't want to do, and what I I specifically don't do, is I don't spread the draft in too wide a circle because. I, I don't think it's worth it. It's not good writing. So why would you want to read it? You know, it, it needs <laughs> it needs the edit before it's ready for for people really to you know to digest it. And so yeah, so you know, I mean, the people that um, that I have to read it are just people who you know want to help me and probably wouldn't read it otherwise. So that you know, I think is uh, is particularly useful. Okay, well, from my point of view, I finally got round to releasing episode four of the Conclave. Thanks very much to all the people who kept on hounding me to get it done. Um, a little bit, a little bit behind schedule, should we say? Considering that uh, a large chunk of it actually involved the uh, the topic of sort of future gazing, and uh, one of the items in there was uh, discussions around the the Oculus Rift. And obviously, when we talked about it back at the the beginning of October, we didn't know that Frontier Developments were going to come out and announce that they were going to support it. So uh, it was quite interesting going back through that show and thinking, yeah, actually, if, if we'd waited two more weeks before we recorded this, we might have had uh, some different comments. But uh, overall, a really interesting show, I thought, um, and some good feedback. And thanks again to the guys who took part on that one. I'd also like to apologize if any grumpiness comes across <laughs> from myself um, at the start because not sorry what happened was um on the icebreaker question was about the damocles video and you said to me john have you got anything to add since we we covered it on the last podcast and i just abruptly said no because <laughs> i didn't with the intention that you would just take out the fact i said no and the fact that you asked me and just moved on to the next guy in the edit but you didn't. No, that, in fairness, that was the only bit of grumpiness that I kind of left in the show, just to show people how grumpy you were on the evening. But in fairness, you were heavily medicated that night, weren't you? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, I did I did kind of get a little bit of revenge for you, John, because I don't know if you noticed in last week's episode, there was a whole section where uh, Foz asked Grant what he was doing, and uh, Grant gave a very sort of um, <laughs> un... un unuseful reply so Foz then coached him through uh, replying which I thought this is priceless I'm leaving this in the edit so so yes which I thought was was very good yes I was very impressed with I that I did like that, actually. actually 
I was like, I was, it was like listening to Lave Radio Raw. You know, <laughs> if we ever do like a live edition, you know, a part of well, we already have, yeah. <laughs> kind of... but we even had to edit the live for the podcast. <laughs> but what I mean is, if we ever did just release something for the hell of it, you know, live or streamed live, then um, that's the kind of stuff I'd like to see. See what you want to you want to hear rather than see the. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's just others have picked me up on that before, if I recall. Um, the um, uh, the fact that uh, Foz is actually coaching us all through. Um, our narration of the week you know what have you done this week Chris oh come on start that again (laughs) he's the professional I mean I I log in on a Monday the show notes are there ready for the Thursday it's 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 like a well-oiled machine Uh, any chance we could get this sort of back on topic you know any any time tonight you know it's only sort of 10 o'clock in the evening and we've got to be done by midnight but you know you guys just keep on blathering away yeah that's fine just keep going um you see this is this just links in beautifully actually because um before we jump into the show for uh for real i do actually need to start off with a correction from last week and no it wasn't me um coaching grant on uh his answers it was uh well, I'll call it bad note writing, but in last week's show for the Damocles video, I said that the lasers had been put into the video post-production. This was, of course, utter crap uh, and came from me not being able to read my own show notes. So um, I heard it after the show was released and I, I did cringe a bit, uh, but I thought it was OK. I thought it was just one of those throwaway comments that nobody would pick me up on. How very, very wrong I was. Uh, So David said, in reality, we wouldn't see lasers in space, but that would be no fun. So, of course, we're going to see them in Elite Dangerous, and they are, of course, generated by the in-game engine. So there you go, clarification on that one, and I am, in fact, an idiot. So I think we can put that one to bed. Okay, so going on with the show, we'll go straight... Hang on, hang on, I'm just a little bit concerned that now that everything we've got to say on the show is actually correct... Because I think we may as well just pack up now. <laughs> well, not everything, but something maybe as obvious as yeah, the lasers are put into the game after the post-production. Um, yeah, maybe that just needed a little bit of clarification. Oh, okay, fair enough. Everything else that we talk about, like you know, Disney sound packs and you know, Tom and Jerry sound packs and stuff like that, that's all perfectly legitimate stuff. Yeah, that's all definitely going to be in the game. Okay, so this week in the Development Digest, we're going to start off with the uh, Development Diary number seven, where David talks about the coming alpha and beta. We've got the newsletter, we've got the DDF topics of docking stations, faction and causes, and more statuses. And then we'll go on to Community Corner, where we'll listen to some of the feedback that we've got on last week's show and some of the questions we've got from Facebook. Your ship is a miracle of engineering capable of handling the most intense situations. But with no sound in a vacuum, how do you keep up with your ship? Introducing Simulated Sound, where your ship recreates the sound of battle so no vital signal is lost to the vacuum. But wait! Why be stuck with the sounds of death and destruction? We offer alternative sound effects for all encounters. Activating cargo dump. Change the sound of battle with our choice of audio packs. Why not feel sexy in battle? Installing sound pack. (laughs) Or go for a cute farmyard scene. Or even our classy stress reliever. Impact in five, 
New Stroudbury Soundpacks. Changing the sound of battle. So, without any further ado, Dev Diary number seven. What did you guys think of this? David talking about the alpha and the beta. I must admit, before we go any further, I was a bit of an idiot. I actually approached Frontier and said, you know, the, the, the alpha's coming uh, pretty soon. Would you like to, you know, make a comment or come on the show and tell us all about it? And uh, they said, it's a very kind offer, but uh, no, we have other plans. And pretty much 24 hours later, they released this dev diary number seven, where David talks in detail about what the plans are for both the alpha, beta, and also for the gamma. Just quickly, a bit of background on this. So what David's been talking about is the fact that the alpha will come out in December, and it's going to be split into a small section of the game that will be released to uh, to alpha testers to play. So things like the combat engine, things like, I mean, in my head, I'd like to see things like the Damocles video, uh, some sort of playable version like that in the combat section for the alpha. So, and then you've got the the beta, which starts in February, and that will take us through to uh, to March, the end of March, where you know normally the Kickstarter backers would be expecting this game to be released. Uh, what David said is that after that, at the end of March, they'll begin a period of time which they're going to call the Gamma, and this is where basically it will be released to all the backers from Kickstarter, anybody that's backed it um, on the internet through the Frontier Development website. And it will go into this period where all these players are in, but um, they just want to make sure that that gamma phase, uh, there's no glaringly obvious glitches with the code or anything like that. And then once they're happy with that, it will go gold and it will be released as a full retail product. What David didn't say is how long that period of gamma was going to take. You know, obviously, they don't have any publishers uh, breathing down their necks like the, the good old days of game tech. Um, so in theory, this gamma process could go on until David Braben is actually you know, happy that he's got the ultimate perfect product, which could be, what, two months, two years? I mean, what do you guys think? John? Well, I posted about this on the thread because there seemed to be, you know, some people giving their opinion, how it made them feel, because obviously it's impacting the delivery of the game. There was a lot of fanboys, or, or what do you want to call it, who were uh, kind of quick to defend Frontier, you know, much as we, we all love them. But just, you know, to start out, I want to make it clear that I think Frontier, if, if Frontier feel that the game is incomplete or not to standard, then of course they should push back the release date, you know. Um, you know, it's not going to do their franchise or their reputation any good by repeating the mistakes of, like, Frontier First Encounters. As for the news about what's going to be delivered in the alpha... You know, this idea of you're going to get this kind of modular release. I can understand that some people may feel a bit let down um, as they were probably expecting a more complete kind of game experience. However, the announcement actually made me feel quite optimistic. Firstly, I think it's a good thing that Frontier think that the flight and combat parts of the game uh, are good enough to stand on their own in terms of being the first things that players and testers are going to get their hands on. As a Frontier player, I'm very keen to see improved flight slash combat in game so i'm glad they're taking the bold step of you know making the testers focus on this aspect of the game it makes me think that they've actually got a bit of depth in there um and then they said that they were gonna how did how did david phrase it he said there was going to be additional builds of the alpha Uh, secondly the other parts of the game trading especially I, i don't think they need quite as much player testing anyway 
um, in my opinion, as they follow quite similar patterns to role-playing mechanics and spreadsheets. Um, I think balance is far more important in kind of like the visceral and direct player-to-player interaction, and it doesn't quite get more direct than dogfighting, I don't think. So uh, the other thing I mentioned as well when I posted was about this extended beta or gamma, as David uh, called it. Because um, we're on first name terms now. Um, regardless of uh, Frontier's best intentions and the outcome, um, it is a delay to the delivery date of the final game, no matter what mental gymnastics some people are performing. But I know there's some people who are quite keen on playing the final game. You know, you're, it's like you, Fozza. You know, you don't like spoilers. You just want something, and then you you want it in front of you, and then you want to go in and explore it. Um, and so maybe this news might be unfortunate for some people. I mean, personally, I'm just hoping for a better game. And if, if and if that's going to deliver it, then you know, I'm happy. The only thing that confused me a bit was was the the uh, the mention of the Minecraft development cycle because Notch released an it's, it was an incredibly basic game engine to the world. Um, and it went from there, building like he built in an increasingly complex functionality. Whereas Frontier, so far, they've been, you know, apart from the couple of videos they put out in the um, the Kickstarter, they've followed more of a tr- traditional development path, and you know, they, they've been geared towards delivering a finished game and not giving away too much work in progress because they, they don't want to give people the wrong idea. So I'm not exactly too clear on the parallels between. The two games, but I'm, you know, I'm happy to be educated. You know, in in summary, it's not completely unexpected because I think we've already said that they've established, you know, some pretty ambitious goals, um, even with their head start on the networking code and things they mentioned during the Kickstarter. It's an interesting change. The I'm actually I'm not completely sure whether um, I like it or not. On one side. There is the the caveat of the fact that it gives more time, and actually, I'm I'm keen on more time. Um, anything that uh, that adds a little bit more time to the development cycle, I think, is good because there's a lot to do. And I think that you know the development time in the first place was looking a little bit small. That said, uh, there were one or two people on the forums that piped up as soon as this happened, saying, "I told you so," and you know, really. Just because we we perhaps had an idea that it might take longer, I'm very glad that you know that essentially that we've waited till you know you you, you don't know how long that something can take like this because you're not the person in the office. So at the end of the day, you know it, it's up to them uh, in terms of getting the time, and they have the flexibility through the Kickstarter to be able to take a, a you know an additional amount of time to do the things that they want to be able to do to make the game good. So you know in that sense. I'm, I'm, you know, as a, as a, a person, a player, as an experience of this, I'm, I'm keen for it to be good and be right. As someone who's commercially tied in to Frontier's release, it's a little bit more tricky because if we have this extended gamma and then a, a box office retail release, it makes it a bit more difficult for a writer to approach uh, the whole release date with a clear idea of exactly when the best time is for uh for a novel to be sent out alongside it do you release it at the time when all of the backers get the opportunity to uh to see the game or do you release it later um when uh, the game goes into to retail into box sets and uh, available in the stores so i'm kind of at this stage um and you know we've had a small discussion on this on the writers forum at this stage i'm waiting to hear more from frontier it is a bit difficult in that because you know i am commercially tied in to uh to their product i'd like to be able to strategize based on knowing what their marketing plan is 
And of course, I, at the moment, that is difficult to, um, uh, to ascertain because all I have is the information that's in the development diary. That's a good point, actually. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought what sort of impact having this sort of prolonged gamma would actually have on you know, the writers who are trying to bring their stuff out at the same time. I mean, could you not do the same thing? I mean, your book's obviously going to be brilliant come <laughs> March when you're thinking of doing it, but maybe you put could my, do a gamma and have put my book in extended. <laughs> I would hate that. Absolutely <laughs> hate that. Oh, that would oh, just you be could, the. You could have thirty-five thousand editors. It would be fantastic. Yeah, I, I would absolutely <laughs> hate it. Um, I'll make the point in that um, I think it's a very positive thing that uh, that they've made the movement, and you know the 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 workout in terms of doing this by by giving the the game to the people that have backed it first is a really really good idea. But it's quite tricky to now puzzle through what the best course of action is for me, and. You know, and I have to look at it that way because obviously I'm commercially tied in. So I'm not sure what to do at this stage. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm open to to suggestions. Not not from listeners, obviously. I mean, you know, I'm I'm entirely happy to you know to have listeners tell me exactly what they think they should do. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to to know when the best time from Frontier's point of view is. And you know, Michael has has started engaging with that conversation. So you know, I think uh, I think we'll have some time to to work that through. From my point of view, having worked in sort of software development, uh, you know, in the past and and, and releasing stuff, there is an element with a, I'm a bit concerned about the gamma stage because there's always an element with with a beta stage where you don't want users to start using your system as if it's real and if it's as if it's final. The problem I'd always have in the past is that, you know, you give customers a beta version of a system and if they love it, they start using it and putting their real work into it. And then when you get to the end of the beta and you have to say to them, that was a test system, we're going to delete everything, they get very upset that they're going to lose everything. So I'd be interested to see how the, the beta works in terms of whether people then start creating characters that they don't want to lose progress in. But more significantly, the gamma, the gamma is effectively going to have to be as live. I mean, if it's being released to gamers that have backed it as their kind of advanced look at the game you're not necessarily, Frontier aren't going to be able to just draw a line under it and say, well, that was the gamma, we're deleting everything in the database now. So I think they are creating a little bit of additional work for themselves because they are effectively going to have to support a live test system with with real-world data in it, effectively. So I think, yeah, I agree with Alan, there's, there's additional challenges there. I mean, my other consideration as well is that if you've got something like this where effectively the people who've backed it are kind of being given the thing they were told they were going to get in March. There's always been discussion about features which aren't going to appear in the game until sort of add-on packs or or updates. So there's a kind of odd thing with the Gamma now is where do you decide that it's done? It almost takes the pressure of a release date off them. And you almost, I wouldn't like to see it come into this horrible thing where it just drifts and drifts. I mean, I feel a bit like George Lucas has left Star Wars in Gamma for 35 years because he just (laughs) keeps changing it. You know, I mean, where does the gamma end and the, you know, maybe we'll get planetary landings now as part of that process. Who knows? No, that's a good point. But at the moment we see Jar Jar Binks uh, in Elite Dangerous, everybody is uh, fully authorised to shoot the crap out of him. So, no, it's a good point. And I must admit, when... um yeah, when this was first talked about way back in the Kickstarter about the fact that they were going to launch this game in March, uh, it always seemed a really sort of ambitious target to get this much game done in you know what they basically had was just over a year. So I know I was in two minds when uh, when they said about the gamma. Initially, I thought, yeah, actually, 
Uh, that's a very sneaky way of covering up a, you know, a slippage to your release date. But at the same time, you know, those of us that have been with the franchise since you know, Elite and you know, Frontier, you know, we know what sort of an impact releasing a buggy game actually had on the franchise. And what they've got now is they've got an opportunity to make sure it is really, really polished. And it's David Braben's final you know, vision of what this game should be. Uh, should be like before it's launched to the public and uh, it'd be quite nice to see that it does make you wonder though uh, if there's anything that's going to change i mean you know, some of us have paid for you know the boxed version of the game so come march are we going to actually get that shipped out to us and we will receive a, a boxed version or will they wait until you know the gamma is over before they actually release the final box version to the backers and, and let's not forget as well that, that things can still change i guess from here on in because if you were to look at maybe, you know, perhaps why they haven't kept to the schedule they originally thought, at the end of the day, they've had this DDF process. Mm. And people have been challenging design decisions, coming up with things that have that a Frontier have said, oh, this made us go back and have another look at it because we realised there was a chance to change it and do something different. So actually that process of engagement with the DDF, you know, could potentially be the thing that's actually pushed them past the March deadline. I mean, they've already said that they've redesigned the kind of in-system flight model because of things that were brought up in the DDF. All of those changes have an impact on development. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, absolutely. The um, you know, the development cycle with the DDF being involved has become much more fluid than I think they uh, initially had thought. John, do we have a listener question on this topic? Well, yeah, we do. And and sorry, just, just quickly from what, what uh, Chris said there. I, mean, I thought their deadline that they'd set, you know, this March release was, you know, quite ambitious, just given the regular software um, development cycle. And, you know, and that's not before seeing the level of, you know, impact the DDF had. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm not surprised that obviously the date slipped. But, yeah, we had a question which um, from Nigel Holloway on off of the Facebook his question is quite, it's related to what you were talking about um, a couple of minutes ago, Fozzer, about, you know, the, the public's reaction to the game when it gets released. First of all, from a marketing perspective, so you've got Frontier, what are they going to do? Are they going to put effort into marketing the game when it's finished for the Kickstarter and for when it's it's done for the public? Or are they just going to do, you know, are they going to just put all the money into when it goes out retail? You know, because it's going to be kind of odd putting all, you know, all that PR out there when actually the game's been, you know, it's out there on YouTube and everywhere for, you know, maybe a couple of months before. But Nigel also has an, another interesting question, which is what happens when the public comes on to the onto the game and they start playing it and all of a sudden they realize there's been other, this this large group of people playing it for months and who are way ahead i mean obviously whenever you if you join an mmo behind the curve you know months or years later you know you've got to make it up but they've bought a retail game off the shelf on the day it's been released and they're going to be going in there and finding there's been a bunch of people playing it for months you know how's that going to affect their experience yeah absolutely and it makes you wonder as well i mean obviously they will do some balancing but obviously the, the rest of us there's thirty-five thousand that are back to the uh the campaign, there'll be an element of those that are actually part of the founders uh, system as well. So there are going to be inherent advantages for the backers, be that that they've got a three months, two months, two weeks head start on the uh, the retail box version or just in game, they've got certain advantages. It's difficult to sort of put myself in their shoes because I'm sitting here quite smugly knowing that I've backed it and I've been following it for a year and I'm going to get my version in March. But if the shoe was on the other foot, yeah, I can't imagine I'd be best pleased about it. But maybe it's like the best design decision ever. 
in terms of when retail comes out and people join the game, you know, on day one, instead of everybody is a noob and crashing into space stations, you're going to actually have some players you know, across a spectrum of experience. So you are going to see players in large ships and smaller ships and the medium ships all performing all the different roles, which would kind of be more natural than a day one MMO where everybody's farming, you know, the same low-level stuff in 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 the, the core systems or whatever. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, there's actually there's a there's a good um, design parallel here in that when you go to um, you know Chris and I obviously do live role playing. When you go to live role playing events um, over a period of years, there are regular people who go every year, and then there are people who discover live role playing and you know and turn up for the first time, and. In a lot of the the larger games, you have these nations already established. So you've got the opportunity there when you turn up as a first you know first timer. You have the opportunity to choose which nation you go to. When you go to a particular nation, the people who've been there for a few years kind of really establish the culture of what that nation's about. So it becomes an easy way to create the factions and to establish the cultures of the factions um, in the events that uh, that are there similarly if you you know if you parallel that over to a multiplayer online game and it means that um, if you're clever with your 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 initial gamma design you can set it up so people have you know determine their allegiances in terms of their corporation or their um, or their, their their you know interstellar faction and those people can effectively start to to turn around to the newer players and bring the newer players through and and really because they've had some time in there and because they're real fans they can utilize that experience and utilize that interest to establish uh, a very immersive experience that's a good point actually uh, maybe we're thinking about this in the wrong way um we are we're, we're looking at it and we know it's a multiplayer game and we're sort of assuming it's going to be like you know a normal mmo but we keep on forgetting or maybe we're not putting enough emphasis on the whole group system yeah, the fact that they come in and you know you've got a group of players that've been playing it for however long. Yeah, you know, if they put themselves into you know into their sort of a solo group or just a group with their friends, they're never going to come across us. Or you know, it's only when they drop into the all group that they are actually going to come across these uh, you know these more advanced players. So you know, maybe it's not going to have the massive impact that we're expecting. I mean, take for example you know, Grand Theft Auto Five that we finally John and I managed to get working online. Yeah, the the matching system on that is very very good. You know, when you jump into a, a environment and you've got players coming in for the multiplayer, you know, near or near enough, they're sort of matched to a similar level to you. Yeah, you know, what's to say that Frontier Developments can't put in some similar sort of matching system uh, for the instances, so that when you go into the all group, you're all actually matched with someone who's you know at a similar level to you. Yes, of course. You know, that would be that would obviously help that kind of situation. But I, I'm just thinking. We're now, you know, in the latter stage of the development and we've done the group proposal on the DDF and there was no mention of any kind of level or skill-based proposal. So, because there'd be two schools of people, you know, there'd be the people who would say that if you're out in an anarchy system and you're in a sidewinder and some guy comes up in his anaconda armed to the teeth and blasts you away, well, you know, what do you expect? But a matchmaking system based on skill or, you know, reputation isn't going to support that kind of scenario, I guess. Has it not been mentioned because it's not, you know, they don't want to implement it or has it not been considered or is it just not going to happen, I guess? I think the key thing we have to remember here is that 
um, or at least you know, in one sense, when you're looking at the the idea of people getting a you know a, an advantage for being in the gamma as opposed to the physical release later on, if exploration is the the main focus of the game, then if you know more about where everything is than people who don't, then you have achieved something that is uh, you know is privilege and is information that is. Um, it's a benefit from the amount of time that you've spent in the game prior to other people spending in the game. So there is a distinct advantage to being in the gamma test because you know where stuff is and maybe you've gone to the boundary and you've explored more space. Um, in that sense, it is an immediate advantage. And similarly, if you then start to look at the way in which occasionally with games websites spring up and they start you know sort of recording information in terms of people's um, exploration of the game and where they've gone and you know and where to go to get this and where's the best place to get a good deal on this and so on and so forth then it, it all becomes uh, part of a you know a, a sort of a gatekeeping privilege system that isn't necessarily a bad thing um, in that it will allow a sort of a softer landing for for those who who come in immediately um, because you know people can kind of help you with with tips to go there and go here but at the same time it does mean you are very conscious coming in late of other people ahead um, and certainly in exploration you can immediately see you know the uh, the tangible benefit i think the problem is it's, it's purely one of perception um, as i said you know if you join an mmo a few months late you know you expect people to be ahead of you a day, a day one retail person who snaps this up in the shops or, or you know on Steam if it's there or wherever is obviously going to be a bit put out with the fact uh, it depends on their mentality you know if they're an ultra competitive person which you know and you see this with a lot of console gamers you know you saw some very strange behaviour when the GTA Online was misbehaving some people were really throwing their teddies out the pram just because they were losing their you know they'd achieved something and they'd lost it and you know they took it you know, massively to heart, you know, and that type of person is going to look at other people having an advantage and they're going to think that that's unfair, they're going to, it's not going to interest them. But then you've got the other people, the people who actually want to invest some emotional time in the game, they are going to want some support network in-game, they are going to want people there who can say, oh right, well, you need this then, that would be best for your situation, this is the ship that you want now, or, you know, this is where you want to go. Well, that you know, that changes the culture, doesn't it? The the key thing here is that this actually turns an advantage or this, this actually makes an advantage of the supportive culture of the Kickstarter backers because what it does is we already know we've got a, a huge cohort of people who are very, very committed to this game and those people uh, want to support it, want to back it and also want to to make the game experience inside the game right for everybody that uh, you know that is around them and certainly when we went to lavecon we saw that we we had quite an open discussion at lavecon about the kind of game we wanted to have and about our fears uh, about particular types of player versus player not our personal fears john and i obviously aren't scared of anybody but um the fears of uh, of some of the people in the audience and i think by having that group of people already in the game for a, a period of time it may well be that they will set the tone so the type of gamer that you're describing, John, the, the type of person who gets very, very sort of slighted by small things that, um, that they, they believe are theirs, you know, these, these very small materialistic in-game values, might be that they'll give the game a miss simply for the fact that, um, that it's been set up in this way with the gamma test. 
But, and I suppose it comes down to, you know, frontier developments, it's a business. And I guess you've got to look at the market. Where is the market in gaming? You know, is it these extremely competitive people um, who, 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 want you, who want the game that way so that everyone, is, it's all fair from the beginning? Or is the market with people who don't mind, you know, in, in, in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, but the, the frontier have already changed the perception of that market anyway because the people the majority of the demographic of people who are supporting this game are an older age group you know we are an older age group so as as part of that you know that demographic is is shifted from the the traditional demographic of you know where it be aimed at and similarly when they approach publishers and david braben said this i believe in an interview very early on uh, prior to, to the Kickstarter being launched or, or, you know, early when the Kickstarter was launched. When they did approach publishers, publishers were looking at that demographic and looking at Frontier's experience with that demographic, which is obviously is very old for this particular genre of game. So it provides a, a very interesting change in that regard because I guess you can almost strategize towards providing a quality experience rather than strategizing towards providing you know, something that is complete visual feast as you uh, as you pull it out of the box. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, we'd hope that it is a bit of both, really. But um, certainly this plan does allow for a method of refining the, um, the, the community experience, as it were. OK, well, we'll leave that topic there for the time being. We've got another listener question coming in. This one's actually <laughs> another one from Facebook. It's from my brother. Says, will the fact that you're playing a partially finished game version of the Elite Dangerous during the test period put you off the game in any way? Now, I think what he's getting at here is the fact that a lot of people who have signed up and as part of their reward uh, will become sort of beta and alpha testers for the first time. You know, a lot of people won't have experience of this, and you know, some of them might be disappointed that you know the alpha is only going to be sort of cut into small sections. John's already said some people expressed disappointment that they're expecting a fuller experience for the alpha. Are there people out there who are going to get frustrated when you know they've been playing the game for half an hour and then suddenly, you know, for no reason whatsoever, their you know, Cobra Mark III suddenly blows up when there's nobody around them? Is this sort of thing going to cause frustration for people and maybe put them off the game in any way? I think people need to manage their expectations of what an alpha is. I mean, an alpha is the first time Frontier will be running their code outside of their office, arguably. I mean, there may be other places that have seen it. Um, but, I mean, I, the difference between an alpha and a beta test, you really have to manage your expectations of what you're getting from an alpha. I am fully expecting that when I get my first build for the alpha, I will install it, I will run it, it will crash, I will send them the bug report, and then I'll get another build you know, a couple of days later when they've worked out the thing that makes my particular system cause it to crash. I mean, that's that's what happens in testing. And I think, you know, it's going to be a very, not a long time, but it's going to be a way into testing before, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a version that is stable even across people's machines. I'd also say that if you have an expectation for continuing to or continuing characters, continuing credit ratings, continuing, you know, elite status, et cetera, et cetera, prior to the gamma test, then don't. That's not me saying that I have some special privilege knowledge of Frontier, but I think the best way to approach this kind of testing thing is to approach it from the positive of the fact that you've got access to a, an awesome game. 
and you are part of the development, shaping, and refining of that awesome game, rather than approaching it from the point of view of, oh, look, I've got some extra stuff, and I've managed to go to lots of places in an extra ship. That's for the final version. You know, we have to separate these two points. And I think we, we alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, where we were talking about the the role of people in the DDF and also the fact that the people who are in the DDF are the consumer as well. You know, dividing the, the, the line a little bit, because we want to help, but at the same time, some of the expectations and some of the things that we learn about when we finally get the piece are slightly different to the ones that we will, you know, we will have when we're doing the testing. Okay, well, yeah, had we known how involved we were going to get on that topic, we might have actually done a separate podcast just on that topic alone. But as we haven't, we're going to draw a line under that one and move on to the newsletter. Um, there's a section here about weapons, which I think was quite interesting. The the differences between the, you know, the, the missiles and the torpedoes in games and giving you some idea of scale between those. But guys, what did you think of this? Because looking at them, they've obviously got the small, medium, large and huge. Now, that huge torpedo... What exactly are you going to fit that onto? Are you thinking that it's going to be you know, something the size of an anaconda or a panther clipper? And what exactly would you fire it at? Because that thing is massive. It might be that some of these aren't necessarily player weapons. Mm. There is a possibility that if some of these things are, as, are so big that they'll only be fired by kind of capital ships, that they are things that players will only witness the business end of rather than actually necessarily getting to fire them themselves. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So these uh, these larger torpedoes could have been what we actually saw in the Damocles going from the Federation you know, cruiser to the Imperial one. That's a, that's a good point, actually. But, I mean, they do, you've got to say, they do look very, very cool. I mean, these are just a, you know, obviously the first drafts of it. But I would love certainly the, you know, the large missile silo where you can see what's that, you know, something in the region of maybe 15 missile bays that you can fire. Imagine firing off a volley of 15 missiles and watching a ship just blow up in front of you. It's awesome. Also in the newsletter, there's the section on space stations. There's an image, and it's an absolutely gorgeous image of the various sort of modules that go together to make a space station. Uh, that looks absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to see one of those in game. Yeah, and one of the things it shows is one of the things we've been talking about for a while, which is whether or not you'll have kind of you know larger ships docked up outside the space station. I mean, we all remember from Frontier the big transporter things that used to uh, sit outside that people would sort of fly past and buzz. Um, and here on this image, you can see that there are very large craft kind of docked around the sort of the, the ring of the space station, if you like, uh, all facing outwards, presumably in some sort of cargo offloading position or something. I'm wondering if you're a pirate, you know, can you zip in there real quick, blast open the back end of one of those massive containers, steal some stuff and get out of there quick? Okay, and also in the newsletter, the Panther LX. This is the updated model of the Panther Clipper. That was a fan favourite from Frontier. To give you some idea of scale in this, it looks, if you have a look at the picture closely, in the bottom right-hand corner, it looks to be a model of a human. And if you can get some sort of comparison and scale between that human and the Panther Clipper, the Panther Clipper is absolutely massive. And and certainly in Frontier, it was the ship that everybody aspired to. What do you reckon, guys? Is this going to be a ship that um, you aspire to in Elite Dangerous? Well, to be honest, I remember from Frontier, I mean, both the Panther and the Puma Clipper, they were basically flying bricks. They were. And the only reason you played them was because you were trading and they were the big ones, the big mamas, which could, you know, make you the most money. So hence why I fell in love with the Anaconda, you know, because I thought it looked a bit better. 
it's a bit more shapely. Um, but looking at this, you know, looking at this, as you said, it looks really good. You know, obviously, new technology means more polygons, meaning they can make it look a bit sexier than a brick. You know, and I guess if I was, you know, a hardcore trader in the new game, I would be willing to trade in my Anaconda for it. In the comments chat this week, they also mentioned Movember, which is the elite community charity campaign. Um, more of that a little bit later on in the show. Okay, leaving the newsletter, we'll go straight into the DDF. This week, we're talking docking and stations, faction and causes, and more on statuses. Okay, first topic in the DDF, that of docking and stations. Mr. Jarvis, I believe you've been reading up on this. There's, a, there's quite a detailed stuff about the, the process of docking, and I think for those who've played you know, a previous game like Elite or Frontier, some of those nice familiar elements are there in terms of contacting the sort of station control to ask for clearance and then they will assign you a docking bay and the door will sort of open for you and you have this sort of limited window to fly safely through that docking hatch and then get yourself to your uh, get yourself to your sort of docking berth what there isn't in here in the certainly in the proposal is anything that kind of clarifies the discussion that we had previously about what happens when you fly inside a station because obviously we you know we talked on the show previously about there being this physics issue of what happens when you actually get inside a rotating object with a ship they haven't really covered any of that what they have covered that's that's very interesting is that the the landing pads are magnetized so that last moment of landing on the pad will be activating a magnetic grab and they've said that if you are too far away from it you'll build up speed with the magnetic grab and you will damage your ship if you haven't got accurately near enough the pad that you can be kind of caught safely so that's an interesting bit of gameplay that's sort of come out the other thing that's quite interesting is that they've uh, said here that you will be able to dock to the outside of a space station if all you want to do is refuel so if you're you know if you're coming up to a station and you want to go somewhere else but all you need to do is basically load up on fuel before you go you don't have to go through all this docking process you can just clamp onto the outside uh, and get refueled and go i was actually going to disagree with chris jarvis that this whole magnetic thing is like good gameplay it sounds like whack-a-mole you know <laughs> and if i want to play that i'll go to the local fair or i'll just go and whack some moles i guess but I, I just thought it was unnecessary because i don't think it adds anything to the me- mechanic of landing too fast or landing upside down or something like that you know I, I, it's just another button to hit and and i don't think that really adds any gameplay it just adds complexity but I just quickly, I just wanted to say about the other thing that Chris pointed out, and he was quite right, that there was no mention of, basically, you've got a revolt, you know, a space station that's rotating and you go into it. By the sound of this docking proposal, when you're in there, there isn't going to be any rotation, because it's not mentioned. It's just mentioned that you're going to go and land on a pad with a magnet. There's no thought to a, rotate, a rotating landing pad. So what does that mean? I don't know. I suppose maybe this is another point as well for um, you know, it made more sense in landing on planets and stuff. But in Frontier, there was the option of um, sort of leaving in a hurry. So uh, just sort of blasting away like the Millennium Falcon uh, without yeah, without uh, asking for um, you know, clearance to, to leave. Now, if you can dock on the outside of a space station, is there going to be a similar sort of option where, you know, if you wanted to leave in a hurry, you could actually just blast away? What, leave without paying for your fuel? Yeah, heaven forbid, but yeah. The Esso Garage Bandit. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, yeah, there's nothing on here. It's all about. I mean, again, most of the most of the um, docking that you're going to be doing at the moment with the game as it is is going to be with stations. So, yeah, obviously, the majority of that you're going to have to request docking permission to leave. But you know, if you're landing on a moon, maybe, um, or if you're landing in a pirate bay, or just docking outside to just get fuel, it'd be quite nice to have the option of just sort of speeding out of there at, uh, at full blast. I quite like the the magnetic button. I think um, it does add something dramatic in terms of the the last moment in there. Um, I think I quite like the idea of the contrast of space, to be honest, because having a little bit of gameplay inside the post box, as it were, gives you a little bit of a contrast to the fact that you're you're out in this massive universe and then you're suddenly down into this tiny, tiny box and you've got to hit something at the right time to, you know, to dock correctly. Otherwise, you could end up you know sort of denting the side of the box and destroying your ship i think that's that's clever i don't think it's it's not too detailed in that um you know we all know that with elite docking was one of the hardest things you had to master and then after you got through you know sort of eight or nine missions you immediately bought docking computers and never thought about it again with this what it does is it gives a little bit of a test but without it being too difficult, so I think that's okay. I'm I'm not um, I'm not against that being refined to something else. If if people want it to be some sort of small retro jet parking or something else to keep it neat, that's fine by me. But some kind of small gameplay in that claustrophobic space, by contrast to the outside, I think is a good plan. Okay, do you think it's a, a good idea or a bad idea to have the option just to skip that and just fast dock? I'm not so keen on that. I like the outdoor docking idea because i think it will fit well with big ships so it will allow you know variety of space stations and it also will allow um if you've got a smaller station like a mining ship or something else i like that too but yeah i i kind of think that if you're bypassing some of the experience you're bypassing some of the experience aren't you i guess there will be some kind of docking computer you can buy at some point but i'd kind of like to think that I'll I'll try and dock manually whenever I can. Of course, if it's made too hard, then I'll be like everyone else and I'll buy a docking computer. <laughs> so are we thinking that maybe the update to Elite is actually instead of smearing yourself on the outside of the space station, we're now going to go inside and smear ourselves on the inside of the space station instead? Now, maybe you're thinking about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, far too much talk of smearing. Maybe we move on to the next topic of the DDF, which is um, factions and causes. Again, Jarvis, I think you've been reading up on this. Yeah, well, one of the things I can do while holding a screaming baby is, you know, scroll a web page with a mouse and read. <laughs> I can't get much else done, but I can read. So I think that's why I uh, know some of the stuff. And no, it's, um, yeah, they, they've gone into a bit more detail where we've talked vaguely about how there'll be missions sort of generated by what happens in a star system. And we sort of talk about things like, you know, rebellion and famine and all these sorts of things. This proposal gives us an insight into what factors are going to go into making those decisions in the game, and even a bit of an insight into to maybe how it kind of works behind the scenes. So basically, they're talking about a figure that represents a planet's, or where it says a system. Now, one of the things I'm not sure about is whether or not these factors will represent a whole system or a planet within a system. But anyway, it, you know, it, it, it says system here. So you've got wealth... You've got a separate system for standard of living. You've got their development level, uh, which is sort of about how technologically and materially advanced uh, that system is. The security rating of that system. So depending, I think that's really a, a question of, of how much security they have rather than the security type, whether it's military or police. 
Um, you've got population. You've got a list of the government types, which again will be familiar to people that have played uh, Frontier, certainly. And then you've got their economy type, which is whether they're agricultural, industrial, yada yada. And you've also got uh, a list here of system assets. So it says here points of interest under the control of the system authority. And then you've got other assets not owned by the system. And then you've got a kind of internal list of neighbouring systems, people that are considered to be their kind of either allies or enemies, I guess. So these are all the different factors that determine how those statuses change in a system. And one of the things that's quite interesting about this proposal is they've actually created a second thread where they've asked people to suggest what combination of these different things might actually lead to a change in status. And they give some examples. So, for instance, a famine has to occur when the population kind of goes up and the standard of living drops below a certain number. The point I made about this was just that the number they've actually listed as to, as to how this data is stored is, for example, the standard of living will be a number between one and a thousand. Now, for me, a thousand is, is too much of a gradual detail to really make any difference to a gamer. There was a great article by um, Warren Spector, who wrote Deus Ex, where he said that compared to other role-playing games, they specifically decided in Deus Ex that they would just have three or four upgrades for each player ability. Because if you change from something being level two to level three, as a player, you notice quite a big difference. But in other role-playing games, if you have an armor rating of 96 and you change something and it goes up to 98, what do you notice as a player? Your gameplay experience isn't changed. So my concern with this that was... You know, if you've got a standard of living that's 830 and then in the next system it's 850, what's the difference? But I think what they've done here is only every 100 actually makes a difference. So effectively you've got ratings of 0 to 10 and actually this figure of 1,000 allows them to kind of slowly tick away changes in the background and it's only when it hits a big number that a system will plunge into anarchy or war or famine or, or whatever we're looking at. Actually, the the DDF members have uh, picked up the issue with regards to this being a status of the entire system uh, and whether systems can some systems can be disputed and effectively have separate statuses based on uh, different areas. As yet, uh, that is that's an ongoing discussion. This is a pretty good uh, proposal in that it's it's really offering the DDF people a, a real chance to shape the game, not just in terms of giving you know, their opinion on what proposals are about, but to actually feed into the development system and and to come up with ideas that will actually appear in-game. So I have no doubt there are a lot of people who have DDF membership who who don't frequent there on a regular basis, but this this can really give you an opportunity to kind of shape the game. So if you are one of those people on the DDF and your interest has waned recently, I implore you, you know, get in there and have a look at this because this this is really interesting because this is going to shape how um, events happen within the game. Um, Just to go back to the previous points, yeah, they they have picked up the issue in relation to the fact that they're discussing this in terms of systems and then obviously asking the DDF members to then suggest system statuses that can be inputted into the way in which the systems work. Um, the DDF members did pick up the point about the fact that you know some systems could be disputed and whether those disputed systems would have 
different statuses based on uh, one faction controlling three planets, one faction controlling two planets, and so on and so forth. And Tom Kuehl, the designer who put the proposal in the first place, has replied at, uh, I think it's somewhere down page six or post 57, where he said, yes, actually there will be uh, sort of civil war elements or, or planets um, seceding. Um, and these are very good examples of statuses. And these will have different resolutions and different smaller entities will have proposals and there will be simulation on this. So don't panic. We'll get to that smaller stage at some uh, some later point. So that's very encouraging. And certainly most of the comments uh, with the engagement uh, on this have been very encouraging where people have suggested particular uh, sort of statuses to, to inject into the game and also where the feedback has been been given it uh, it does look like an exciting proposal yeah absolutely and just looking down some of the stuff the ddf have really sort of gone to town with uh, with possible statuses for these systems okay well that's it for the ddf section this week uh, we'll leave that there and come on to community corner voice recognition activated please state name station engineer miles blackard access to personnel files granted Please state staff member of interest. Personal file 643. Name Chris Forrester. Designation second technician. Repair services. Working. File open. Open additional comments. Comments open. Comments recorded by station engineer Miles Blackard. 09 period year 3299. Technician requested personal leave this month. I'd thought this would be a positive thing meant we might actually get things done around here. But no, turns out everything is fixed before starts to break down. While we're here. Neve, access records, please. Working. Open. Open description. Open. Thank you. Add appearance bald and dirty. <laughs> Bearded as well. That should please the ladies. Working. Revision confirmed. Replace photo with one from the manifest of the prisoner barge we have to dock. Working. Please choose a photograph. Oh, I don't know. One of the dead ones. Before expiration? Yes, before he was... No, actually. Use that one. Yes, that works. Open disciplinary. Working. File. Open. Excellent. Add indecent quantity of Quartorian nerve agent found in storage locker. Forrester claims to have no knowledge of how it got there. Working. Revision confirmed. Dave, remind me to get the master lock key from security this afternoon, will you? Yes, the one that opens everything. What? No, no reason. No reason at all. As always with Community Corner, we will start off with Alan and the writers section. What's been going on, sir? Well, we've started to discuss some of the the details of actually in the the last couple of days we've been discussing flashbacks and um, the use of flashbacks in writing. Obviously, Chris has now got access to the writing forum and um, can see all the lovely details, so he's able to to give a bit of a comment too, which uh, you know is is obviously is very useful. Um, we were evaluating the merits and flaws of this. Some writers obviously do like to use them. Some writers don't. Um, and how long you can let a flashback go in a story without it suddenly effectively becoming the story. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, that's that's the main uh, talking point. We've also been discussing how the uh, the changes to uh, the testing phase and the launch 
in relation to the gamma test will affect the writer releases. Uh, we're currently all chatting through about what our plans are, whether we're going to coordinate that or whether we're going to um, to sort of have individual plans. Um, and it's now um, at a stage where we have uh, uh, more of us uh, sort of discussing the the nature of what we're going to publish and when. So, you know, that's all, uh, all very interesting. And you've got um, more interviews have been released on Hooked Gamer. So Marco has gone over and uh, now interviewed his wife, which was the last interview on Hooked Gamer uh, that was there. So you've got uh, my interview and an interview with, with her, with Ulla, and also with, with TJ, Drew, and John Harper, all available now from, uh, from a clear link from hookgamer.com. Oh, and Darren as well. Sorry. Sorry, Darren. Um, and so, yeah, so there's um, quite a lot of information really uh, going on and through, but we're all looking at um, uh, our writing and, and looking at the process. Okay, thanks for that, Alan. Um, okay, next is going to be uh, feedback, and this is one that uh, I think we've all been dreading slightly. The show last week where we mentioned a particular part of the game, that of sound in space, the idea that your ship actually takes the, the outside environment, be it a space battle or docking or, or whatever, and basically um, synthesizes those sounds to give you a better tactical awareness inside your cockpit. Um, we have been accused of being slightly grumpy about this idea, uh, the idea that the whole artificial synthesis of uh, sound is you know, just a step too far. It's a rationalization that didn't need it to be made. So a lot of people on the forum said, actually, no, this is, you know, this is a good thing. You, know, you can either switch it off, which is something we didn't mention in, the, uh, in last week's episode. If you wanted to do, you know, switch off that, that feature, you can do. But it also provided a little bit more gameplay in the fact that if you had damage to your ship, then maybe this synthesized sound uh, would also go out, you know, giving you a, you know, a certain handicap in the battle. Now, most of this, I have to say, was directed at you, Mr. Stroud. Uh, the accusation was you were quite grumpy on the whole topic last week. Have you got anything else to say? Um, yeah, a couple of things, really. Um, one, one comment was really interesting in that um, someone said that, um, obviously, uh, there was a fiction bias, which I thought was incredibly interesting. Uh, I, I couldn't work out how I or how we had had a fiction bias, and I, I was kind of thinking what they actually meant was maybe it was just me rather than <laughs> rather than it being about fiction because you know it, it, they're actually uh, whether there's a contrivance uh, for sound or not um you know makes very little difference to uh, to uh, the writing of fiction whether you can hear things or not um, you know might make a difference to the writing of fiction in terms of whether you featured uh, the device um i've kind of been walking around with this um this decision for the last couple of weeks and thinking about it and mulling it through. I've got, I think I've thought a bit, to be fair, uh, you know, and I'll be honest with that. And I've said I always am about these things. I'm not 100% committed to uh, or 100% changing my mind and thinking that actually it's a good thing because I don't at the moment. But I did have a moment today. I was thinking about um, the immersive nature of, um, of the thing and the idea that the pilot is plugged in and that the pilot is in this immersive environment and the sound environment is part of the immersive environment. And the idea of the rationalization of humans trying to make sense of the depths of space and make sense, you know, some sort of um, psychological requirement for them to be able to make sense of the, the vastness of the, the distance and everything else by having sound clues to assist their, um, their ability to, um, you know, to understand depth in um in such a large environment i thought actually that's quite 
nice. I quite like that as a rationalization, but I still haven't, it still feels awkward at the moment. So, you know, maybe I'll have a think over it. Maybe even, you know, Michael Brooks will give me a job to do that I will probably not like very much and uh, I'll have to write the rationalization. I doubt it. I expect someone at Frontier (laughs) will put something together. But the point being is that, um, yeah, you know, I've kind of thought around it and, you know, and and looked at people's comments too. And, you know, I I always feel that, that these things are, you know, stuff that you're every time anyone comments on it, it's worth revisiting and thinking about your opinion again. John? The way I look at it, and and I think I had the same kind of reaction as Alan, but um, I guess on reflection, the way I look at it is that it's all about, you know, your perception, your expectations. And if you're happy to have augmented vision in that you have a HUD, why would you not be happy to have augmented audio? So for me, that that's what this kind of proposal is. It's that the, your ship creates audio to give you more information about something that normally you wouldn't have information about. That's how I see it. Again, did it actually need rationalizing? I mean, this is the point that we were, I think, trying to make. Uh, Obviously, David Braver mentioned that laser beams in space wouldn't be noticed. Various vent steams and stuff like that in space wouldn't be wouldn't be noticed. But they're there because it's because it's fun. It's because it makes the game more enjoyable to play. Uh, most of us, I think, would have taken the fact that, yeah, they could have just written sound in space and, and moved on. You know, I think we were arguing the fact that, you know, did it need that extra level of rationalization more than the fact that we disagreed with, you know, sound in space? Alan? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm still walking around between those two points. You know, I'm, I'm basically, does it need it? Um, I, I, I think they, you know, they could have very easily made a strong decision and said, no, this is the way we're going. And, and I think most people would have been fine with it. Um, and explanation death, as I you know, coined the phrase on, um, uh, uh, on the forums, explanation death, death can be harmful because what you end up doing is you end up over rationalizing all sorts of things and you kind of don't need to. You can just go, you know what, for this, this is part of the gameplay experience. We know it's not essentially right, but it's part of the gameplay experience. So you need it. And, you know, as Chris put it in last week, they, you know, that would have been perfectly fine. But as I say, I've spent two weeks walking around with the idea of there being a rationalization. And actually, there are a couple of things that you can kind of think about how that affects the psychology of a person that they're completely plugged in and immersed in something. I think it's quite interesting. So hopefully that will clear up some of that feedback from uh, from the forums. Uh, but just a quick point on that. Uh, obviously, we love hearing from the community. We're a community podcast. Uh, and even though people were complaining that we were grumpy it was actually great to get that sort of feedback on the show so what we're going to do with future episodes you know by all means if there is anything on the show that you disagree with then we're going to instigate a right to reply so what you would do is you would if you've got any comments on the show then just send us a quick recording and email it to info at laveradio.com and we will play it on the show and comment on your feedback Okay, so moving on to Facebook questions. The first one comes in from Michael Hughes. Quick apology, this came in last week and we just completely ignored it. Sorry, we overlooked it. We do apologize. Uh, Michael Hughes says, after reading the announcement on Kickstarter about Oculus Rift supported in Elite Dangerous, marvelous news, by the way, I was a bit confused about this. Oculus Rift version of Elite Dangerous will be available to all backers that have an Oculus Rift headset for no extra cost. It's the bit that says that have an Oculus Rift that got me confused. I assume this meant that Elite Dangerous backers would get the Oculus Rift version of the game if they wanted to use the Oculus Rift plus a regular copy. If they wanted to use the Oculus Rift plus a regular copy of the game, 
But in this article, which he quotes, it seems to say that Oculus Rift backers will receive a free copy of Elite Dangerous. What do you guys think? Is there going to be two versions, one with the Oculus Rift um, a code in it and one that's actually just a regular copy of Elite Dangerous? Well, we don't really know, do we, at this stage? Um, and similarly, we don't know what the relationship between Oculus Rift and, uh, and Frontier will be, whether people who backed Oculus Rift are getting a free copy of, um, of Elite Dangerous. So, I mean, that, that would depend on them uh, writing a contractual agreement between each other in terms of doing that. And at the end of the day, if they choose to do that, that's up to them. There would obviously have to be a benefit for, for Frontier to do that. I don't think that would happen, though. But, you know, it could be that something's come up that Oculus are providing that um, that Frontier, you know, really need. And so, you know, there becomes a sort of a mutual benefit thing. At the same time, the difference between the, the Rift version and the retail version without, you know, Rift support, we don't know, to be honest, at this stage, what the, the difference may well be, because all we do know is that Frontier have tested Rift and it works really well with the game and they want to support it. I think we celebrate that. I don't think we question too much and we wait till they give us a further announcement. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Obviously, we will as soon as we get more information, we'll get back to you, Michael. Next question. This one comes in from Luke Chalice. Uh, I know it's discussed from time to time, but I'm really looking forward to exploring the Galaxy Enterprise style. Do we think that Frontier Developments can make this Galaxy exploration interesting, or is it likely to turn into another Spore snooze fest? I'm also hoping one day at least that some colonization stroke terraforming makes it into the game. It's kind of an end game. It's the sheer size of Elite Dangerous that sets it apart from the competition. I'm hoping this can be worked to its advantage. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, he makes the he makes the comparison there with Spore, which I did play, and I did get out into the, the galaxy and did go from planet to planet, but it was just so samey that... I mean, not same because obviously procedural generated, but in terms of the, the actual mechanics of it all and what you could actually see when you got there was also samey that it was. It, it was quite dull. What do we think that Elite Dangerous is going to bring to the the marketplace that's going to make it interesting to continue going where no man has gone before. I think it does come back to the, the, the issue that it is one thing to provide, you know, a massive gaming area and it is another thing to kind of fill it with stuff that's interesting to look at. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before when we talked about planetary landings and we've said that, you know, in, in frontier, you could land on the earth in five different places. And clearly there are more than five places to look at on earth so other planets should sort of follow suit and there should be you know a lot of stuff going on but i don't know it's really hard to tell at this stage isn't it i mean planetary landings is later down the line i would be inclined you know to agree that i think it would be fun if some sort of if the if the end game for the explorer class maybe if we're talking about when when you get to elite that it actually opens up additional stuff if one of the things that you could actually do as the an elite explorer is to actually begin to change planets that you discover and prepare them for sale to you know corporations or whatever that'd be a really interesting end game for that 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 class of player it also i mean just to follow on from your point there chris the exploring is commodified we know already that the map and other bits and pieces uh, make the exploring commodified in that you're selling exploration routes, you're selling information about uh, locations and so on and so forth. By doing that, it becomes interesting anyway because it's already you know, got a, an exchange attached to it. Similarly, Kate and I discussed this on uh, the episode that uh, uh, that we're on with, uh, with John and obviously John came in uh, on part of it as well in terms of the way in which the really interesting places, the batshit crazy places that have got all sorts of really randomly, strangely generated things, 
and that Frontier can't. They can obviously set this um, this this procedural generation up, but they can't check every planet. So you know, out there somewhere have to be uh, a very strange collection of the of the you know the the tools put together in a really odd way. So there has to be some planets out there that are going to be really weird, and I think that's going to be worth finding. Also, remember, Thargoids are out there too. Yeah, good point. Okay, well, that's it for Facebook questions. Uh, just a quick uh, couple of shout-outs. The first one is in regards to the LaveCon poster competition that we ran, oh, seems like a long time back now. Um, yes, we haven't forgotten about it, and in fact, we do have a winner. Um, the winner for the script, the idea was that you would write a second text script um, making it as funny and as maiming as you possibly can. The winner of that competition is Colin Ford, who wrote us an excellent script on the second tech and basically all the background. Yes, uh, we judged Colin as the winner. Unfortunately, Colin wrote a script in such a way as that it effectively ended the entire second technician arc. So if we were going to produce it, it will be the very last Second Technician episode. So going back to the competition winner, Colin, uh, we've mentioned this to Colin, and he completely agrees with us. So if we decide to end the Second Tech, it's probably going to be Colin's script that we use. But in the meantime, uh, Colin is working with Alan to actually write another script that we can prepare, and you'll hear that in a show in the next few weeks or so. So congratulations to Colin. You've got a... A massive A0 poster signed by all the development crew at Frontier Developments Cambridge, including David Raven and Michael Brooks. That's winging its way to you now, sir. Okay, and finally this week, the shout-outs. Uh, the first one is the Elite Meet that's happening on Saturday the 2nd of November at the Premier in Manchester Airport. Myself and John are going along to this one, as are about 35, I think, last count. Other Elite fans, and the idea here is that we're literally just going to go have a few beers and talk everything about Elite. So if you want to come and join us, check it out on the forums and get your ticket now. Yeah, and a shout out to the um, the Tales from the Frontier podcast. Um, if you go to elite-anthology.co.uk forward slash podcasts, they're all listed there and they have subscription links for RSS and iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, we have a new iTunes review, this time coming in from the USA. A big thank you to Unique123456 interesting title uh who gave us a review that's on- amazing that's the same combination of my luggage <laughs> <laughs> they gave us a, a nice review on the us itunes store so thank you very much for that and finally the crew of the mobra mark 3 the elite community movember team uh, michael brooks set the community a challenge to reach 600 pounds before the first of november and he would shave off his iconic beard. This challenge was accepted and smashed by the MOBA Mark III team in record time. So Michael has kindly offered the community their next stretch goal, that of lead programmer Igor Terenchev. The crew need to hit £1,200 before the 1st of November, and Igor will de-beard. The current total as of recording was £800. If you'd like to join the team or donate for the cause, check them out by searching for Elite Dangerous on the Movember website. Uh, that's going to do it for another show. Thank you very much to Chris, John and Alan. You can contact the show at info at laveradio.com, on Twitter at laveradio. You can search for us on Facebook. If you'd like to call us on Skype, you can leave us a voice message at lave.radio. And finally, playing us out this episode, it's a new track by Alan Stroud. It's called Pursuit.
So that, you know, I think is uh, is particularly useful. Okay, I understand. Um, anything else to share with us? Nope. <laughs> Apart from your horses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord, there's going to be a lot on the editing floor. Um, that is the advantage of having this very committed support forum. Foz, why do you keep banging a drum? Sorry? You keep banging a drum. There keeps being a dum-dum uh, every so often. Yeah. Hold on. Just check. It's the mute button on the microphone. Just check if you can hear it. It's when you come back in. Okay. Um, Stop so, doing that then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't come back in, ever. Um, so, yeah, the... Um, you know, dividing the, the, the line a little bit because we want to help, but at the same time, some of the expectations and some of the things that we learn about when we finally get the piece are slightly different to the ones that we will, you know, we will have when we're doing the testing. Someone's breathing. Oh, sorry, I didn't mute. <laughs> oh, there's a porn movie yeah, on, yeah. to be honest. I was, I was sitting there going, you know, I, I don't breathe twice. How does this work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next, Alan is going to do inward singing. <laughs> Thank you. Am I back? Well, you know, I would hate for people to think that we were a shill for frontier developments. Well, that was kind of that was kind of last week's stuff. Foz, can you hear us now? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Oh, you're better now. Yeah, um, yeah. That was kind of a little bit. Um, you know, we were a little bit grumpy last week, and you know, we were being a bit strident. Hold on, hold on, no, 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 no. You were a little bit grumpy last. week. The rest of hey. us got tired with that brush. Okay, all right. Oh, Alan, you see, I was rooting for you in the last episode. I was like, yeah, stick it to the man, Alan. <laughs> and finally, the panther. You didn't want anyone else to comment on it. No, Alan just told me to say something nice about it and move on. So I, I said something nice something about it. Nice about it. Well, put some dots in the screen then, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was foolishly, I was foolishly waiting for Fozzer to take a breath, but I know <laughs> from having edited him that the only time he doesn't take a breath is between two different points. In the middle of a point, he breathes quite a lot, but when he's going from one topic to another, that's the only time he doesn't pause. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> or when he's or when he's eating. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit personal, isn't it? Oh dear. Um, Chris, was it an interesting point you had to make? I'd like to think so. Go for it then. By the way, there is a little man there. If you look really closely, are we sure that's a man and not just a little bit of you know ink? Or something. Because Frontier, before they scan in, there, they print stuff out, and then before they scan it in, you know, just spill ink and shit. All over. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 grumpy. Yeah, behave. <laughs> Sorry, that was purely playful sarcasm. And the other thing we've been talking about is we don't actually know how well things like Kindle actually support in-page illustrations. Well, I do, and they support them really do easily. Oh, do they? Uh, yeah, yeah, they're fine. Because um, I've never, I've I've never done, read a book on I've done Kindle photos. that has stuff in there. So. I've, well, thanks for admitting that you've never read my books. Um. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have pictures. Your books I, don't have pictures. Yeah, they do. Um, there, are maps, <laughs> there, are, there are maps at the front, and there are illustrations through a bag of bedtime tales. 
Okay, well, that's going to do us for another show. Thank you very much to Chris, John, and Alan. If you'd like to contact the show, you can at info at laveradio.com. You can catch us on Twitter at Lave Radio. You can search for us on Facebook at... Oh, fucks. Okay, well, that's going to do it for another show. Thank you very much to Chris, John, and Alan. <laughs> What? I think he thought he was muted. <laughs> Chris? Yeah? Any reason why that? you just just exploded in laughter? Oh, maybe I, maybe I was the one to cut out. Fozzle was going, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then he literally took in a breath to do his closing bit and cut off. Uh, he was perfectly... <laughs> I thought it was, oh, I thought it was him that cut off, no. so I was commenting on it. No, your um, your your audio quality <laughs> has now dropped massively. Oh, it's me it's that's died. It's actually you. Um, oh, weird. Yeah, Foz was perfectly fine, and what you did is you just pissed all over his is out, um, which Excellent. was was funny in itself. But you know, bye bye. Excellent. I'll I'll, I'll remute then. Yeah, do you want to mute off? Um, Cheers, mate. Okay. <laughs>